Um, so me and Brooklyn, we actually just got back from Colorado, and we actually planned on doing this. We're like, we want to climb a mountain, um, and Colorado has a lot of mountains. Uh, they have these thing called 14ers, mountains over 14,000 feet, and they have over half of them that are in the United States. And me and Brooklyn, like, we want to climb on top of one of those, but not just any mountain. We want to go and go on top of the highest mountain there is. And so that's what we did. Like, which one's the tallest? That's the one that we're going to do first. Um, so we set out. We did it. It was awesome. God's glory and majesty. Like, you could just see everything up there. It was cool. And as we were coming down, we got to a very familiar familiar spot because we experienced the same thing. Uh, we got down to the spot and as we passed this another couple that was going up, we heard them talking to each other and they looked at each other with, as if in like horror or disbelief, like they lied to us. Like this mountain is a lie. Everything about it is a lie and what they were referring to was this thing called a false summit. Because from the bottom, and everyone knows, or everyone should kind of know that on this mountain there is um, this thing called a false summit. But little did they know that there's actually two different false summits. And that is where you're looking up, and the tallest thing you see, you think that's the top of the mountain, but really there's something else on the other side of it. Um, and so there's two of them. So you are climbing up, you're trekking, you're getting out of the tree line, you see um, something that's really tall, and you're like, okay, that's what they're talking about. If I can just get over that, then the next highest thing after that is going to be the top of the mountain. And so you do that, you get to there. Like, okay, I just got to make it up to that. And it's, I mean, it looks like it's the top of the mountain. Like you look up, it's the only thing you can see. Um, and people are really small up there. They look like little ants. I'm like, that has to be it. They look very high, very far away. So you get up there and you turn a corner and you get to the top and you realize there's still probably about a thousand feet of elevation that you have to make it. And in that moment, everyone hearts, their hearts just drop. Like this mountain is a lie. Um, and it's fun, it's all that, but the, the scary thing about lies, um, like when you're at the bottom, you see that lies are, are easy to believe because you already want to believe that, right? Like you want to believe, like this is going to be easy because if I can just make it there, it's going to be okay. Um, so keep that in the back of your mind. We are... Coming off of a three-week series Steve has led us through since the 4th of July weekend um, called Living Free. This week and next week could technically be week four and five off that because we're going to dive uh, deep into freedom, spiritual freedom, um, but more specifically the battle that we face each day on the road to spiritual freedom. And as we know and we'll see, true freedom is spiritual freedom. It's not just the ability to get to do everything you want when you want to do it. That's what the world considers as freedom. Um, but it is a spiritual, it's freedom from sin. And Jesus, um, freedom is found in slavery and submission to Jesus alone. Jesus is sufficient for you to find freedom from your sins. And that's because Jesus decisively defeated the devil whenever he died on the cross and rose from the grave. He decisively defeated him, and therefore he won the war on sin and death. So there is freedom, and it's found in Jesus alone. However, we live in the between times after the battle that Jesus won for us, but also before the realized coming kingdom of God, where the kingdom of God will be here on earth, and we'll be living with Jesus as our, as our king. We live in the between times, which means we have a war for our soul. 
Have you guys ever felt that tug of war inside of you before? Like you want to do the right thing, but there's also a part of you that's like, I don't know if I want to do the right thing or not. Like I want to do the bad thing. Like there's there's that inner dialogue that's happening inside of us, the, the war that I want to obey Jesus. I want to wake up. I want to read the Bible early in the morning. I want to be able to pray. I want to be able to deny myself. But then there's that part of you that inside that's like, no, maybe I want to splurge a little bit. Maybe I want to do this. Maybe I don't want to wake up early. Maybe I want to watch this. Maybe I want to do this. Like, there's the war. There's enemies of our soul. I think movies get it pretty accurate whenever they depict an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other, and they're both like, what should I do? And they're both like saying, do this, do that. That's not too far off from what it actually feels like. And that's because there is a war for our allegiance, a battle for our soul. Which Lord will we serve, Jesus or the flesh? Because we're always a slave to something. Which Lord will we serve? And it doesn't help that we have three enemies battling our soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And while that's not language that's exactly taken from the Bible, it's language that the early church fathers um, used to put into to, to words um, this battle that we face based on New Testament writings that they read. Um, and you can see a lot of that in John chapter 6, John chapter 8, Ephesians chapter 2, uh, so much more. Um, But the world, the flesh, and the devil, they act kind of like an unholy trinity with the sole purpose of doing what Jesus said of the thief in John 10.10. Whenever he said the thief only comes to steal, kill, and to destroy, the, the three enemies of the soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil, they work in tandem to bring destruction, to, to deform us from the image of God and sowing destruction into the world. Here's a thesis. A thesis. Sorry, my tongue stopped working for a second. Here is a thesis I got from author and pastor John Mark Comer, which um, some of this thoughts come from, and that we'll be working off this week and next. But the thesis is, I'm not going to try that word anymore. (laughs) The devil uses deceitful ideas, better known as lies, that play to the disordered desires of our heart, better known as the flesh, and then are, are normalized in a sinful society, which is the world. The devil implants lies that we want to believe because we already have a flesh that wants to do the bad thing and that we think is okay because everyone in the world is already doing it. That's how these three work together. Um, so this week, we're going to start on, focus on the devil and the strategies that he used. And then next week, we're going to dive into the flesh and the world and how we fight against those things. Um, but... Let's just jump into deep end. You guys ready to jump into the deep end? Um, Evagrius Ponticus was a Christian monk, an early church father, um, and he had a lot to say on the subject. I actually have an original picture of Evagrius for you guys. Boom, look at him. Um, I love, love stuff like that. But Evagrius, you probably don't know his name too well, but you know some of his work. Um, he wrote a lot on spiritual freedom, spiritual formation, and the role that the devil and demons play in preventing you from becoming more like Jesus in your life. Um, he wrote a book titled, and I actually almost used this title for my, for my message. Um, he wrote it called, it's called Talking Back, a Monastic Handbook for Combating Demons. Like, what an awesome title. Like, you can't get a better title than that. A monastic handbook for combating demons. Like, that's just something that you want to read or you think is found in Dungeons and Dragons or something like that. Um, 
So some of you, you might not know his name. You might not know some of those works, but you know one of his works. Have you guys ever heard of like the seven deadly sins? He's the guy that kind of came up with those thoughts. Uh, he originally wrote eight evil thoughts, um, and then it was later condensed down to the seven deadly sins. And whenever he was writing this, writing those eight evil thoughts down, he was actually writing it to fellow monks. He wasn't writing it to a general audience, but he was writing to fellow monks to explain of how these eight thoughts interfere with their spiritual practice. He's like, you guys understand how hard it is for us to want to follow the way of Jesus in the world that's not. And it's because these sins, these eight evil, eight evil thoughts. And one of the most surprising things about Evagrius' paradigm was that our main fight against the devil and demonic temptation is a fight in which he called logismoi. It's in the thoughts. That's the Greek word for thoughts or thought patterns or your internal belief system. The ideas that you play, the ideas that you believe and live out. He says that is the way the devil attacks. That's his battleground. But for Evagrius, these logismoi, these thoughts, they weren't just any random thought. They were thoughts with a destructive force behind them. So basically... The greatest hindrance to our spiritual formation and freedom is the devil. And the means by which he attacks is by evil thoughts, better known as lies. It's deceitful ideas that play to the disordered desires that are then normalized in a sinful society. So if you go um, have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to John chapter 8. Uh, Pastor Steve has faithfully led us through this over the last couple of weeks, um, and I just want to build on top of that and see the strategies of the enemy here in that. So John chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 30. It says, As he was saying these things, many believed in him. And then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So what the first thing that we see is a true disciple or a true apprentice of Jesus is one who continues in or abides in his word. And in a very important sense, the word is the teachings and practices of Jesus. It's the word of God. It's the Bible. So in a very important sense, it's reading the scripture. It's obeying and living out in Jesus's teachings. It's reading and applying it to our lives. But in another sense... The word, it's more than that. It's more than just knowing the word in your head or just knowing knowledge about Jesus or about God. Abiding in Jesus' word also must include a spiritual sense. Because as, G, or as John was writing this and as Jesus was saying this, he wasn't using that word, word, carelessly. He had in mind everything he's already wrote about it, especially John chapter 1, where he says in the beginning was the Word, the Word is with God, the Word was God, equating the Word to Jesus. And he also had in mind what Jesus said about the Word in John 5.38, where Jesus refers to the Word as something that can abide in you. So it's not just about reading and knowing the Scripture, but it's about abiding in the Word. Excuse me. The word is not just the message about Jesus and his teachings, but to abide in the word, to truly be a disciple, is to abide in Jesus himself. So it's something, it's relational, it's spiritual, it's more than just practical. And then in verse 32, it's the same thing. He says, and you'll know the truth, 
and the truth will set you free. So whenever we remain in Jesus and his word, we will know the truth, and it's the truth that will set us free. And And Jesus says that this truth is knowable and will set you free whenever you abide in the word. And then verse 33 through 36 says, We are descendants of Abraham, the Jews said. And they answered him, and they said, And we have never been enslaved to anyone. So how can you say we will become free? And Jesus responded, Truly I tell you that everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. So a slave does not remain in a household forever, but a son does remain forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be really free. So the freedom that we know that Jesus mentions, it isn't just a social or a political freedom, but it is a spiritual freedom. Because he says that everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And that's a very scary place to find yourself in, where you realize, I am a slave to this sin. But Jesus also says that when we abide in him, whenever we abide in him, we will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. And it's when Jesus sets you free, you will really be free. So the devil uses lies, but when you know truth, you'll be free. And Jesus was speaking to these Jews from the perspective that they were not yet free. They were not finding true spiritual freedom. And that really makes the, uh, the Jews in that moment mad. So they go back and forth in verses 37 through 44. They go back and forth over what it means to be free, what it means to be truth. Um, talking about their origin. Like, we're better because we're from Abraham. You're not because we don't even know who your father is. And so they go back and forth on that. And then this is what Jesus says. He proves that they are not free because God's word is not in them. And because they do not have God's word in them, They are thus controlled by the devil and their flesh, and they follow the ways of the world. And Jesus' main evidence of this was the fact that they were trying to kill him and go against the will of God. It's like, you guys might know the scriptures, you might understand the word, but you're not abiding in the word. Because if you were abiding in it, then you would know that I am sent from God and that this is God's will. But instead, you are following your father's desire. And so the paradigm that Jesus is offering is that it is evident they are not true disciples because they are not abiding in the word because they want to carry out the will of their father, which is the devil. Listen carefully in the next couple verses. In verse 42, it says, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me because I came from God and I am here. For I didn't come on my own, but he sent me. Why don't you understand what I say? Because you cannot listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. So here's, a, here's the characteristics of the people that Jesus is describing. He said they couldn't listen to his word, therefore their father is the devil, and they want to carry out the devil's desires. They, they desire to do what the devil desires. That is a summary of everyone who is being deformed from God's image. Now here's the characteristics of the devil according to Jesus. For, devil, or for Jesus, the devil was a real 
uh, being, a real, immaterial, intelligent being. Um, he believed he existed. He also said that he had a beginning. In contrast to Jesus, who Jesus didn't have a beginning, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word um, was before the beginning. He says the devil had a beginning, and in the beginning he was a murderer, and that he does not stand in the truth, and there's no truth in him. His nature is lies and deceit, and he is a liar in the father of lies. So that is the paradigm for Jesus on how the devil attacks. It's through lies, it's through deceit, it's through deception, because that is his nature. And then he plays into our desires and um, the, into the world. But let's look at two case studies on how the devil um, is actually using these lies to get people to go against the will of God and follow the desires. And let's see how the devil does that and how they overcome or not. Uh, so first case study is going to be Adam and Eve. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Uh, this week we're going to go over three uh, verses 1 through 5. Next week we're going to look at verses 6 through 7. Uh, but in chapter 3 verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, you may eat from any of the trees in the garden, but about the fruit in the, of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So this is, this is a dialogue between Eve and a serpent in the garden. Remember, Adam and Eve were supposed to, to rule and subdue the animals in the garden. But this is a dialogue between Eve and the serpent. And now while it doesn't necessarily directly refer to the serpent as the devil, we can tr believe that it really is because, first of all, the serpent is speaking against the word of God. But also whenever you get to the book of Revelation, it refers to that ancient serpent, which is called the devil, referring back to this story. Uh, but notice how the serpent or the devil attacks. He doesn't attack over the top. It's not big. It's not scary. It's not something that's very dramatic. Um, but instead, it's subtle. He whispers. He, 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 he tries to use logic. He uses desire. He uses, um, he's very subtle in that. But notice the first thing the devil does. He focuses on the negative aspects of what God said. He takes the generosity of God and he turns it to where it seems negative, where God is restricting. God, is, God doesn't want you to eat everything. God doesn't want you to have freedom. God is trying to withhold you and keep you from having freedom. That was a subtle lie. Because here's what um, God actually said in Genesis chapter two. In two verse 16, says, the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For the day you eat of it, you will certainly die. But the devil, he focuses on the negative aspects. He says, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? So the first thing he's saying, that God, you can't trust God. God is trying to withhold good things from you. He's trying to restrict you from living your best life. Whenever really God said you can eat from any tree in the garden. And the way that Eve responded to that shows that his tactics were already taking root. And so her response shows that God was not as generous as he really was. 
And then she adds rules to his command because God says, do not eat of this tree. But she says, we're not even supposed to eat of it. We can't even touch it. I mean, if you follow that logic, we can't even look at it. We can't even think about it. Like she's adding rules to the, the, the command that God had. Um, and then she underestimates God's warning that she would die if she disobeyed. She said, we can't look at it. We can't touch it. And if we do, then we'll die. But that's different than what God said. God said, you will certainly die. He said, with certainty, that's, that, that is the result. But she takes that part out. And she says, yeah, we'll die. She is subtly believing a lie over truth because God's word was not taken seriously in her life. She believed that God's word was not the final authority, and that's evident by the way that she dismisses some things that God says and then adds on things that she believes God said. Being a follower of Jesus, it's not just about having a general understanding of the word, but it's abiding in the word and having the word also abide in you. And because of that, Satan he jumps on Eve's less than accurate understanding of God's word, and then he pushes her further with an outright lie. So at first, she's like, did, did God really say this? Is that really what God's word said? Can you really trust God? And then... Eve does not respond in the right way. And so he just jumps and pushes her further. I'm like, no, you will certainly not die, which is the, the exact opposite of what God said. The first lie that Satan reveals is that sin will not lead to death. Like, you don't have to take God's word seriously. You can do this, push the line further, do that sin, follow your heart, follow your desires, because God is not going to take sin seriously. You will not certainly die. And then... Satan questions the goodness of God. Satan already hinted that God couldn't be good if he was going to restrict you from eating everything that you wanted. But next, Satan lies about the motive behind why God prevented them from eating the tree in the first place. Like, you, you can't trust God. God knows that if you eat of this, then you'll be just like them. And God can't handle that. God's jealous. God, God can't handle you knowing all the good and evil. Uh, God, you cannot trust him. He's going to be jealous. When really, God's word reveals God's character. And so whenever Satan is questioning the character of God, he's questioning the, the word of God. And whenever Satan questions the word of God, he's questioning the goodness of God. But let's take a step back and let's think about why this was effective for, for Eve. Like, why was this even a temptation for Eve in the first place? Because sometimes we think back and like, that's a silly lie to believe. Like, if Eve just would have stood strong right there, then we would be perfect. Like, we'd still be in the, the Garden of Eden. Like, everything would be uh, just fine if Eve just didn't do that that day. Like, if I was in there, like, God, why didn't you tag me in? Why couldn't I have been there? I would have stood strong. Like, why was that even a temptation? That seems kind of silly. But the thing is, we fall for temptations just like that every single day. Every single day. Here's another fresh way to look at it from author and pastor John Mark Comer. He writes about temptation. He says, temptation has always been twofold. Temptation is always to want to seize autonomy or control from God and to redefine good and evil based on the voice in our head and the inclination in our heart rather than trust in the loving word of God. Here's another way to look at it and why we would fall for that. The three great questions to life are, who is God, who are we, and how do we live? Or another way to frame it is, what is the meaning and purpose of life? What does it mean to be human? And what is the good life? These are the questions 
that are behind all philosophy, all religion, education, art, culture, politics. These are the lies that every movie, every TV show, every book, every podcast is answering for us. Who is God? What is, what is he like? Who am I? What's the good life? How do I find it? These are the core questions to humanity. And so whenever we ask, like, who is God? What is he like? Can I trust him? If Eve was asking that question, like, who is God? What is he like? The devil answered and says, he's unloving. He's jealous. He's holding out on you. Did he say that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? You can't trust him. And then when he asks, like, who are we? What is What's the purpose and meaning of life? What does it mean for me to be living here on earth? What's my purpose? What's my reason? What does it mean to represent God? He lies again. He says, you're just a part of creation. You can become whoever and whatever you want. You weren't made in the image of God, but you are supposed to create your own identity. Morality is for you to make up as you go. Take control of your own life. Be true to yourself. You do you. Eat the fruit and you will be just like God. And then whenever we ask, or if Eve asked the question, like then how do we live? What is the good life? How do we make sense? How do I live it? The devil will lie again. He says, you can't trust God, but you can trust yourself, your own wisdom, your own desires. Like look at this bright, shiny thing that God said was off limits. Eat it. Take it, seize it, experience it, enjoy it. Follow your own heart, your inner desires, the roadmap to the happy life that you are really looking for. And these are still the lies the devil whispers to us every day. Lies about who God is. Lies about who we are. And lies about what makes for a happy life. And the exact nature of these lies, of course, they change from generation to generation, from culture to culture, person to person, but they always run along the same lines. Distance yourself from God. Do your own thing and redefine good and evil based on your own gut and desire. We all face that in different ways each and every day. Now let's look at a different case study. Turn with me to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Remember, it's not just about knowing the word of God, but abiding in it, living in Jesus, and then having the word also abide in us. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. says, Then Jesus left the Jordan full of the Holy Spirit, and he was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days. And when they were over, he was hungry. So let's put this in a little bit of context. This came, he says, as he left the Jordan, or then he left the Jordan. The Jordan River was where Jesus just received or just got baptized by John the Baptist. It's also where the Holy Spirit came down. He was full of the Holy Spirit. But it's also where God broke open the heavens. He thundered down. He says, this is my beloved son with who I am well pleased. So Jesus comes from that high and holy moment. And then it says he is led by the same Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Like this wasn't like the devil like attacking him. This wasn't like the devil's idea. This was the Holy Spirit's idea. The Holy Spirit led him to the wilderness to be tempted. And this is important for a lot of reasons. There's a lot of imagery going on. The wilderness is kind of like an anti-Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden had everything Adam and Eve needed at their disposal. It was, it was lush. It was perfect. It was everything they needed. The wilderness was desolate. It was empty. It's the anti-Garden of Eden. And he went there to fast. 
Adam and Eve were in the garden. They could eat of any tree they wanted to, but Jesus is sent to the wilderness to fast, and he was hungry. He goes there to recreate the Genesis 3 story, and this is where he's beginning to reverse the curse. So let's see how it goes down. Let me actually turn to my real Bible. I skip some verses in here. So in verse 3, it says, The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, It is written, Man must not live on bread alone. So he took him up and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you their splendor and and all this authority because it has been given over to me and I can give it to anyone I want. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And so he took him to, the, to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you. And they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him and says, do not test the Lord your God. And after the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him until for a time. So here's the anti-story of Adam and Eve. The first temptation that the devil questions him with is like, if you are the son of God, if you're the son of God, turn this into some, satisfy your cravings. The devil is questioning Jesus' answer to, who am I? What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to represent God? Remember, Jesus just came from being baptized where God just said, this is my beloved son who I'm well pleased. God just confirmed, like, you are my son. But the devil, the first temptation is, if you are the son of God, then, then prove it. Jesus, that he's questioning Jesus' answer to who am I? What does it mean to me to be the son of God? What does it mean to represent God to the earth? The second temptation that the devil has, he says, worship me and the world will be yours. The devil here, he's questioning Jesus' answer to how do we live? What is the good life? What's the purpose of this life? Is it glory? Is it fame? Is it power? Is it pleasure? We'd have no reason to question that the devil could have offered this to Jesus. Like Jesus could have refuted that. Like it's, it stands for us to believe that the devil has some authority here on the world to give glory and power and fame and authority. He's questioning Jesus' answer to what does it mean to live the good life? Like Jesus was saying, like, I'm the son of God. I'm here to be the king. Is this the way to do it? This was a real temptation. Temptation number three is basically jump from here. Test the goodness in the word of God. Notice the devil, he knows the word of God as well. He's quoting it to Jesus. He says, test, test the word of God. Like God said this, now let's see if it's true. But he's really saying, test the goodness of God. Test to see if God is good. If God is good, he will protect you. If God is good, he's going to save you. The devil is questioning Jesus' answer to who is God, what is he like, and can I trust him? And these are the same lies the devil whispers to us every day. Lies about who God is. Lies about who we are and lies about what makes for a happy life. And again, the nature of these chains from person to person, we don't fall for all the exact same things. 
But they always run along these same lines. Distance yourself from God. You can't trust him. Do your own thing. Follow your heart. And redefine good and evil based on your own gut and desire. But what does Jesus do? How does he overcome? He combats a lie with a truth that is written in Scripture. If it's a lie, the devil's telling us because we want to believe it. But if it's a lie, the only thing to counter that is a truth. And the only way to find the truth is in Scripture. And so Jesus, he counters each lie, each temptation with a truth that is found in the Word of God. Jesus knows the word and the truth because he is abiding in the word and truth and has the word and truth abiding in him as well. And so in each temptation, Jesus stood firm on the foundation of wholehearted trust in God. That's what it comes down to. He wholeheartedly trusts in God and what his word says, that, that God is good and that his word is true. And that is what he is, uh, his foundation is on. And so he knew his identity. He knew who he was because of the word of God. He knew what the good life was. He knew he wasn't going to fall for that temptation because of what the word of God says what the good life should be like. He knows the character and the trustworthiness of God because of the word of God. It's so much more than knowing just the teachings of Jesus in his word. But we, just like Jesus, we must also abide in those. So what does it look like for us today in 2023? If you can go back a couple slides to the blank slide, that'd be great. But let's put this to pen and paper. Like what does this look like for us today in 2023? We know what it looked like for Eve in the Garden of Eden. We know what it looked like for uh, Jesus in, in the, the wilderness. But what does it look like for us in, in Oklahoma, in Tulsa, in Coweta? Because lies get us to doubt the word of God, a lie is distorting our soul and driving us into ruin. And because we are being deformed from the image of God when we believe lies, we are becoming evil through lies. That's a tough way to look at it, but that was one of Evagrius' main arguments, is that whenever we believe a lie, that we are not just believing it. It doesn't just stay in our mind, but then we begin to live that out and we become more and more deformed from the image of Jesus. The psychologist David Beaner, he put it, it's not so much that we tell lies, but it's that we live them. It's not just so much that we tell lies, that we believe them, but it's that we are putting them into practice in our life. And whenever we put that lie into practice in our life, it is creating us to be different from the person that God created us to be. Whenever we believe something different about who God is, that is going to affect how we live. If we believe something different about who we are in him, that is going to affect how we live. Everything is, is, is pointing back to that. And so we all are not None of us are unscathed from believing lies of the enemy. We all believe lies we picked up through this life one way or another and are living those lies and becoming enslaved to them. For some examples, it's like the grown man who was betrayed by his father and comes to believe, I'm only as good as I am successful at work. It's the teenage girl who, comparing herself to the mirage of Instagram, comes to believe that I'm ugly and I'm unworthy of love. 
It's the teenage boy who was maybe exposed to pornography at a friend's house at a young age and comes to believe that women are just an object of entertainment and just something to be looked at. In true pleasure, it's only found in moments like that. It's the business owner who maybe their prior business has failed and now they come to believe that everything I do is going to fail unless I spend all my time and energy working through it as if I'm the God of my own life. It's the father who maybe they're attaining to make ends meet. They're worried about their job and they believe that I am responsible for, for providing for family, not God. Therefore, I need to make sure I'm working and working and working. It's the middle-aged woman who maybe they were raised by a perfectionist mother who comes to believe that if I'm not perfect, I cannot have peace. I have to be perfect in order to have peace. There's no one who is unaffected by lies of the enemy. Remember, they're all different from person to person. But it's only in coming into face-to-face with the reality as it actually is before God that we will then find peace and freedom. Finding reality, like what does God see? Like what does God know about himself? What does God know about me? What does God know about the plans that he has for me? What the good life is? It's only coming into reality that we see that and find peace. For Jesus, remember, freedom and truth was something that could be known. We don't have to believe lies. We don't have to be a slave to those. Because Jesus said that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So then how do we actually put this into practice? It's one thing just to kind of, again, know about the word of God. It's one thing to know about these, these ideas and these thoughts, but how do we actually put this to pen and paper and do something about it? For Vagrius and his monastic handbook for combating demons, he actually lays out a three-step process that you can use to combat any lie from the enemy. Uh, so if you have a notebook or you have a note app on your phone, I want you to go ahead and get it out because I want you guys to write down these processes, these three steps. Uh, this is a practice I want you to pray about and do during this altar time that we're going to go into. But I also want you to do this whenever you get home, whenever you find yourself believing a lie. Find these three things. So in, in Vagarius's handbook, he had over 500 entries um, and he was a monk. Like he, he's like, these are 500 lies that we believe, and these are the ways we're going to counter it. Uh, for you guys, I just want to start up with the one or two big ones that we may be believing. So the first step, write out an obsessive thought that keeps coming to mind, um, a lie that you can't shake, a toxic feeling, maybe like shame or worry, or maybe a sensation in your body, like tightness in your chest, shallow breathing, or that sense of dread. Uh, One example of that would be like, I'm worried about losing my job and not being able to make my car payment. Like that's, that's an example of what that one looks like. And then step two, see if you can articulate a lie behind that thought or feeling. So the first one is like, I'm worried I'm going to lose my job and I can't make a car payment. The lie behind that would be my safety and security are in my job and owning newer and nicer things. Step three, write out a scripture or a word from the spirit that then counters that lie. For that specific example, like my safety and security are in money and in wealth and having newer nicer things, a scripture that counters that is Hebrews 13, 5, which says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God says, never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. See how that works out? Like I'm worried that I need to keep this job so I can make my car payment. And I believe that because I'm responsible for having these things. And in having newer nice things, that's going to make me happy. But the scripture says, no, 
I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. So be content with what you have. Don't have the love of money because you have me, and with me you have everything. That's how this step works. And it's turning to this, your mind to that truth every time you, that lie pops up again because it's going to pop up again every time. Don't be discouraged by that, but keep coming back to the truth and resist. The band can go ahead and come back. And all this is only possible because of Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. We know this scripture well, this truth well, but in John chapter 10, verse 9, Jesus, he's speaking to the people, and he says, I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. A thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it in abundance. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. There is a war there is a fight in our soul for our allegiance. And the battleground is, will we serve the Lord or will we serve our flesh? Will we serve Jesus or will we believe lies and fall into that? But Jesus says we can know the truth and we can live in the truth. We can abide in the truth. We can have the word and truth abiding in us. And all of that is only possible because Jesus laid down his life for us. He says, I am the gate. If you want freedom, if you want salvation, I am the gate, enter through me and you will be saved. And all that is only possible because he says, I am the good shepherd and I have laid down my life for you. He says, the thief, he comes killed to steal and to destroy, to bring destruction, to bring ruin, to bring you into slavery, to lies and temptations. But Jesus says, I have came to give you an abundant life. And that's just as qualitative as it is quantity. Like it's just about, uh, um, like eternal life is more than just how long it's going to be. An abundant life is a life here today of living in true freedom. The satisfaction and joy and peace of what it means to understand who you now are in God. And all that is possible because Jesus laid down his life for you. Jesus' death brings freedom. Jesus alone is sufficient for your every need, so turn to him and stop trusting in yourself. Let's pray this morning.